Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 once again. We're looking at verses 4 through 10. This is, as we noted last week, this is this incredible um, climax uh, at the end of this first section. And everything that Peter has been saying uh, in chapter 1 up to this portion here in chapter 2, this is providing the foundation for everything else he will say in the rest of this letter. Everything else. Everything else is an expansion of what he has said here. Everything else is being built upon the truth of what he has been expressing here. And that truth of what he has been expressing up to this point has come to its climax right here in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2. So this is a central, a central portion of the letter, and it is a central understanding for us. What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be saved in Jesus Christ? These, this, this, is, this is so monumental. Now, keep in mind everything uh, that we have read in the service up to this point um, is part of the argument that Peter is making here. So let's give our reverent attention to God's word here in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what amazing words to end here on that in Jesus Christ we have received mercy and that in Jesus Christ we now have an identity as your people. We are no longer cut off. We are no longer outside of your will. We are no longer part of that counterfeit kingdom that is raising its fist against you. We are no longer seed of the serpent. Lord, comfort us with this, but also embolden us. Convince us of this identity so that we would truly give ourselves unreservedly to the privilege of our calling. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen. Last week, I spent a little bit of time trying to emphasize a couple of points here that are not often um, emphasized uh, within um, con con uh, conservative evangelicalism, at least American conservative evangelicalism. And those two points that, that I tried to help us to see are points that we need to be able to grasp because everything here is built upon these two fundamental foundational points. And, and that first point is that even though you come to Jesus Christ uh, and accept the gospel personally, you do not only do that privately. That even though you come to Jesus Christ as an individual, once you are in Christ, you are not merely an individual. You are now part of the body of Jesus Christ. That once you come to know Jesus Christ, you have now become a finger or a toe or an arm or a weird kneecap hair. I don't know what, where you fit on the body. But when you come to Jesus Christ, you are now part of a corporate reality. And this is absolutely essential because the mission, the identity and mission that we have as God's people is corporate. Now, we have to, as I said last week, we have to maintain a right understanding of the individual. We cannot lose that behind when the church has lost the individual uh, throughout different portions of church history. Um, it has created problems, and the gospel has been diminished. So we do not want to fall into the trap of losing the individual, but we also don't want to fall into the trap of seeing the individual as the only identity that we have as a Christian. So the first point that we, that we looked at last week is that when you come to Jesus Christ, you are now no longer an individual. You are part of a corporate body. Secondly, the way we understand this corporate body is in the idea of temple. What God has been doing from the beginning of creation, even before the fall, is that he had a purpose of dwelling with humanity. He had a purpose of creating in order to dwell with a people that he would make, that were in his image, that would reflect who he is back to him. This idea of God dwelling with people is what temple is. We tend to think of temple in terms of building. We tend to think of temple in terms of, well, you know, that Solomon's temple or, you know, that lesser temple that came when they returned from, bond, uh, when they returned from Babylon or the temple that we see being described in the New Testament. Sometimes some of us remember that there was even a building before the temple and that was the tabernacle. So we tend to think of this idea of temple in terms of building. What God wants us to understand is that that building was always a type. It was always a shadow. The building was always pointing to something beyond it. And what was it pointing to? It was pointing to the reality of God dwelling with his people. So that in Revelation 21 and 22, 
What do we see being described for us at the end of history and uh, what we see being described as, as um, the new heavens and the new earth are revealed in their fullness? What we see is a people who are described as a city that is in the shape of a temple that has garden characteristics. There is this garden, temple, um, city, uh, reality, and that all of it is a way of expressing the people of God, what it means for us to be saved and incorporated into this body. What God has been doing from the beginning is letting us know that his intentions and his purposes are to dwell with a people. When Adam failed to carry out his task in the Garden of Eden, it did not change God's purposes and plans. And that is why when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, this final revelation of God dwelling with his people is something that we see going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, only now we see it in its final completed form. So God from the beginning has a temple program. And that temple program is that he's going to dwell with people. But that temple program also from the very beginning was not just a stagnant reality. It was something that was going to grow. It was something that was going to mature. Pete, or, or, or Adam, who is called um, as he is the first uh, man that God makes, he has this calling as the image of God to be his, God's vice regent. He has a royal calling as being one who represents the rule of God to the rest of God's creation. And so Adam and Eve, together, forming that image of God, had a royal calling. But what we also see is that Adam had a priestly calling in the garden. When he is put into the garden where he is dwelling with God in his presence in that garden temple, he had the calling of working and keeping the garden or cultivating and guarding the garden. It's the same two Hebrew words that are used to describe what priests did in the tabernacle and in the temple. Peter, or I'm, I'm sorry, I keep saying Peter. Adam had a royal calling. He had a priestly calling. He had a prophetic calling as he was the one who received the words of God in that covenant of works going all the way back to Genesis 2 where he was to receive that word from God in order to communicate that word to Eve and to any of the children that would come from them. What we see in Adam from the very beginning is that he had a royal, a priestly, and a prophetic calling in the garden. And when he failed to keep the covenant of works, he failed in all of those offices. And so God needed to provide a new king, a new priest, a new prophet. All of this came together 
in the one person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I just threw a bunch of redemptive history on you. What Jesus is, when he comes to fulfill this earthly ministry, this is why he calls himself a king. This is why he refers to what he is doing in priestly terms. This is why he expresses his ministry prophetically. That in Jesus Christ, what Adam failed to be, Jesus has succeeded. Now, why is that important? All right, now let's get back to 1 Peter 2. Look at verse... As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. What God is doing in, in, in Jesus Christ, as we noted last week, is that Jesus Christ, he came and John 1 tells us, he came as the one who was God. And as God, it says in the Greek, he tabernacled with his people. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is that tabernacling presence of God on earth with his people. But Jesus Christ is not this by himself. Why is it that you and I are to understand ourselves and that connection we have to the corporate body? Because even Jesus Christ does not consider himself as an individual. But he considers himself to be the first of many. What is a cornerstone? And it's really interesting here because the Greek word that's used here for cornerstone in describing Jesus Christ, it can be translated cornerstone. It can also be translated as a keystone. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is that very first block that you're going to set to get it in place and to get it right that every other stone that's going to make up the building is based on. It is the reference point. It's the starting point. It's the reference point. If you don't get the cornerstone right, guess what happens to the building? Not very good. You can see that in anything that I have built. Not a builder. But the cornerstone is absolutely essential. It is the reference point. It is the starting point. Without the cornerstone, the, the building is unstable. A keystone, by the way, is a stone that when you look at an archway, and you'll see at the very center of the archway, there's always that weird-shaped stone that's right there in the middle. Well, the keystone is the stone that makes the archway hold together. If that stone isn't correct, the arch will just fall. Jesus is described here for us as a cornerstone. He is described for us as the keystone. He is the first, he is the reference point, and he is what keeps it all together. He holds it all together. 
Now, what is it that he's holding together? He is holding together this temple, this spiritual house that is made up of people. You and I, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, notice that he is described as a, as a living cornerstone. You and I are described as living stones being built upon him. So if the cornerstone is that very first block, you and I make up the rest of the blocks. Now, if you have a cornerstone but you don't have any other stones or blocks, guess what you don't have? You don't have a building. You don't have a structure. You have a block. Now, given, it could be the most awesome block ever in the world. But if it's sitting there by itself, it's not a structure. It's not a building. It's a block. Jesus sees himself, and he is described here, by the way. I keep saying sees himself because I keep thinking about Ephesians 1 because we were supposed to be there. But, and we'll get to that. But Jesus is the first of many. Jesus is not alone. He's not by himself. He is part of a body. He's part of a family. He's part of a people. He is the first in that temple. And you and I make up some of those other stones that God is building on Christ in order for him to achieve the big purposes he has of dwelling with a people. Do you see how this is working here? But that's not what Peter's getting at. As important as this is, this is all still just fundamental um, truth that we need to understand in order to hear what Peter is actually telling us here. So do you see the big picture? God is making a people for himself. He's going to dwell with his, with his people in, in the perfection of, of his manifold glory. Until that time comes, he is in the process of building that temple on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that every single individual who receives Jesus Christ by faith is no longer an individual, but are now a living stone having been built upon Jesus Christ in connection with the other living stones that are making up this temple. All right, see how all of this is working? Now, why is this important for Peter? Because Peter wants us to understand not just the calling, but he wants us to understand the conditions in which this calling is going to play itself out. How many temples are being built here in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2? Is there only one temple that's being described here? Is God the only builder that is being referenced? Well, notice what it says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The, build, the stone that the builders rejected has become a stone of stumbling and offense. 
Now, why is that important? Well, because the building project that God is in the process of accomplishing, in which you and I are part of what he is doing, what he is helping us to understand is that there is a competing temple that is also being built simultaneously. That there are builders who are trying to build their own temple instead of embracing the temple that God is building. And within Acts chapter 4, Peter uses this same imagery when he is standing in front of the spiritual leaders of Israel, as he is standing in front of the Sanhedrin, as they have been, they have been accused of doing false works in the name of a false Messiah, and as he is standing there before these spiritual leaders, what he says is, guess what? Jesus is that long-awaited stone, and y'all have rejected him. Now let that sink in for a minute. The spiritual leaders of Israel in the time of the New Testament are being told that they have rejected the work of God. They have rejected the stone. And so Peter says, in following up on that, that, that verse that so many of us know and have heard, that Jesus Christ is the only name by which someone may be saved. And guess what? Peter wasn't making this up on his own. Peter was taking things he learned specifically from Jesus Christ himself. Take some time later today, if you would like, and read the, the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants, God or Jesus is telling uh, this parable about a rich landowner who had a garden, and he went away. And while he is away, he wants to enjoy some fruit from his garden. So he sends a servant, someone who is to represent him. They are, he is to come to the garden and come to the people who were working the garden on behalf of, of the owner and say, hey, the guy who owns this that you're working for, he wants some fruit. So give it to me so I can take it back to him. And what the people decide is, no, we're not going to give you any fruit. We want to keep the fruit. We're doing the work. We want to keep the benefits. And so they hurt the servant. And what Jesus says, this happens multiple times. To the point that the owner decides, you know what I need to do? I need to send my son. And what do they do to the son? The exact same thing. They reject the son. And they even try to put together a plan to cut the son out of the inheritance so that they will own the garden rather than just being tenants who work it on behalf of the owner. And what Jesus tells us is that if you want to understand the problems that have existed within the history of Israel, 
then you need to understand them in terms of God who has a plan and who has been executing that plan and his people who routinely have rebelled and rejected that plan and tried to do their own thing. And the history of Israel is God sending one prophet after another to speak on behalf of God to his people to call them back to his building project. And what do they do with the prophets? They kill them. And they kill them. And they kill them. And they kill them. What's interesting here, beloved, is that those who are being shown to be the competition to God are not those who are identified as being part of the world. They are part of the covenant, but they have rejected God's plan and purposes because they think they can do it better. Or they think that the way God has called them to do, to do it isn't going to bear the most fruit. And so they either strike out on building their own thing or they attempt to build along with God, but in a way that contradicts the way God has told them to build. This is serious. We, as the people of God, can, can have the right desire of wanting to play a role and to be a part of this building work of God. That is the privilege here, right? That is the honor that Peter is saying. But the, the, the scary thing, the temptation here, is to not want to build in a way that reflects how God tells us to build. And how is that? Well, in the entire letter of 1 Peter, what he tells us over and over and over and over is to embrace suffering in order to reflect hope over and over and over and over. He is telling us, suffer well, so that when you suffer well, you bear witness to the hope of Jesus Christ. This is counterintuitive, guys. This is not telling us to go out and get forceful and use the sword and try to force people into the kingdom. And he's certainly not telling us to try to avoid suffering because we don't like it or it doesn't fit with our worldview. He is calling us to not only be able to speak the gospel, which is God coming and suffering and dying and being raised again. What he's calling us to is to be willing to show that in the way that we live, taking up our cross and following Jesus. I don't know about you, I don't like that. 
I want to win by looking like a winner. I don't want to win by looking as if I have lost. How did Jesus win? By dying. And his victory was seen in his being raised to something new. What Peter has already told us multiple times here is that you and I, because of our union with Christ, have already been born again to that something new. And so you can either embrace what it is for you to be this new creature in Jesus Christ who has already participated in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, who are already a living stone who are part of the temple project of God. You can either embrace that and then reflect that in words and in actions that reflect the cross and resurrection. Or you can try to go about being a part of a building project that looks different than what God is doing. You and I have a temple identity so that we will see that our calling is to offer worship through the perfect mediation of Jesus Christ. And that in praising the excellencies of God, we bear witness to a God who is worthy of us giving our lives to, even if for a moment, Peter says, our faith is purified by suffering. We cannot disconnect the way we minister from the gospel that we are ministering because our actions will always end up coloring the words. And if we have all the right words, but we don't embody that with the way that we live, then our witness is going to suffer. So, bringing all this to this conclusion here, Peter is emphasizing to us that we are already in Christ, this temple presence of God here on earth, who are called to offer worship to God that takes place both here and out in our vocation. And that the witness we bear is a witness of lives that reflect the gospel and words that reflect the gospel. So that worship, guys, worship is this key response that we have to God, not so that we can then, on the other side of worship, participate in his mission, but that worship itself is the mission. And that worship we give here, what we are doing, you and I right now, we are bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And when you and I go out of these walls and we continue to give praise to God no matter what situation we're in, that worship is continuing to be 
the mission through which God is accomplishing his purposes. The temptation for you and I is to try to get into arguments and to try to win arguments about certain ideas. What we are called to here is to be people whose lives and whose mouths reflect hope, who sing God's praise, and don't mind losing if that means we have been faithful in bearing witness to a stone, a living cornerstone that was rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the temptation for us is to think that if we are suffering or if we are struggling, that there is something wrong. The temptation is to think that if we are not having the same level of power or the same level of influence, that somehow we are tempted to think that something is wrong or something is off. Lord, help us to see that the, con the conditions in which the mission unfolds is conflict. The seed of the serpent is constantly at war with the seed of the woman. And when you called us out of darkness and into light, when you made us who were not a people to be your people, you placed us within the warfare and conflict on the side of the seed of the woman. And so, Lord, help us to embrace this identity and this calling so that we would not uh, get frustrated or aggravated or impatient, that we would see here, as Peter says, those who are part of your building project will never be put to shame even if temporarily the pressures around us make fun of us or reject us. You have not rejected your son, and as we are in him, you can never reject us. And so, Lord, make us willing not just to have good theology, but to be willing to pay the price of living out that theology, even when it's not appreciated and it is unwelcome. And protect us, Lord. As Peter will tell us later in this letter, help us not to revile when we are reviled, but instead, like Jesus Christ, to speak with a mouth and words of mercy and with grace. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.